Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. All right, so the verse that I've, I've shared for several weeks, I'm going to probably share it every single week throughout the, the course of this series, is from Exodus 25, 8, where God instructs them. He says, have them make a sanctuary for me so I can dwell among them. If you get nothing else out, if you drift to sleep while I'm preaching and wake back up, remember this one thing. God wants to dwell among us. It was his plan from all the way back in the garden, and it still is today. When you think about this, like this was his idea. This wasn't our idea. So when we say we want God to be close to us, we want to sense his presence, he's like, yeah, that was my idea, and I want it a lot more than you even do. You know, you think about all the way back from when, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and this is where we are in the journey here. When we're talking about the tabernacle, we're talking about this tent, this portable structure that was a sacred structure where God's presence dwelt among the people. What I love about this is the Israelites continue to mess up. They continue to rebel. They're stubborn. They're ignorant. They're not listening to God. And he continues to find a way to dwell among them. He could have said, I'm out of here. Peace. See you later. He could have distanced himself so we never had a chance to get to him. But he said, you know what, what's going to happen? You're going to build a sanctuary. I will dwell right uh, in that holy of holies. And then the average worshiper, the priest, and then finally the high priest will be able to experience my presence at different levels. So it was always his intention to be close with us and have relationship with us. We have to reciprocate that and actually receive. Amen? 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 If you talk a little bit and move a little bit, you'll stay warm, folks. I know it's chilly. It's all right. We're going to be all right. So what I want us to realize is this. We're talking about this tent, this tabernacle, ancient, ancient ways of worship. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that we are the modern day tent of God. All right? So Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? So now God's Spirit dwells within us. So we don't have to pack up the, the cloth. We don't have to pack up the bronze bases and all these other things and the lampstands. Wherever we move, like if we're walking around, the tent, the temple of God is actually moving with you. Are you following me? The Spirit of God lives in you as a believer. So it would be wise of us to figure out and not skip over the details of the tabernacle, figure out what is he teaching them to do there that I can pull into my modern day worship of God and of Jesus. So that's what we've been talking about. Two weeks ago, we talked about these white uh, cloths that would hang on the outside that separated the tribes and all the tents to the outer court. We talked about this entranceway that was called the gate, the different colors, what they represented. If you haven't been here, feel free to watch the archives. Now, we talked about how when these, these average worshipers, they would bring their sacrifices, their animals, into this tent, into, or not into the tent, but into, through the entranceway and through the gate, and how today that gate we know is Jesus. In John chapter 10, it says, Jesus said again, Verily, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
So we know from coming from the outside to the inside, there's an entranceway, and his name is Jesus. Last week, we talked about once they entered in through the gate, they came to this altar, seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet uh, high, and it was called the altar of the burnt offering, where individual worshipers would bring their animal sacrifice. They would participate in actually ending the life of this animal. They'd put it up, and the fire of God would completely consume it. This is the picture of that animal being a substitute for my life, which should be judged by God because of sin. So these worshipers would know that there's atonement, there's substitution, there's that life for my life, even though it was only temporary. So they would continue to have to bring back animals time and time again. We know Jesus once and for all. Say once and for all. Jesus once and for all died for the atonement for all of mankind's sin and made us holy. In Hebrews 10, 4, it says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In verse 10, though, it says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So tying all these other scriptures together, we know we, when we come through that entrance, we come with praise and thanksgiving. It doesn't mean you have to have a good singing voice. It's the position of your heart to say, wow, I get to enter in through the person of Jesus Christ that he allows me to be a savior. And then when you come up to this altar of the burnt offering, you could say, wow, this is amazing that Jesus died on the cross. Well, I don't have to bring an animal to a temple or a tabernacle anymore, but he actually paid for my sins completely forgiven once and for all. And today we're going to step a little bit closer to this tent that's actually called the tabernacle to talk about the wash basin. And when I was younger, my, my mom used to call me a mudder. And the reason being is, is I used to love playing sports in the mud. I wasn't a great athlete, but whenever it was like muddy and everything, I had a little, like an upper hand because I wasn't very fast, but I was a little bit strong. So like people would be losing their feet and I would, I would just love it. There was something about just mud and muck and messiness just all over the uniform and all in the helmet and everything. I, I used to love like even falling in the water and the mud would splash up. And some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy right now. But it was just something fun about the messiness of that. Um, but there was one thing. I hated getting my hands dirty. It's like everything else could be covered, dripping. And my hands were there, I'm like, wash them off. <laughs> like, get them cleaned up. And I really think it was because I hated when, like, the mud would dry. And it was like that chalky, dry dirt all between your fingers and your fingernails. I didn't like it. I like to have my hands clean and ready to catch the football, to be able to throw the soccer ball if I was playing goalie, whatever it was. So now when we look in the temple, there's actually something quite similar to this. I want you to think about the priests. If they're at this altar and they're sacrificing animal after animal after animal, and they're catching the blood from the slit throat, I'm not going to get into many details, in a basin to spread it on the side of the altar. How many of you know their nice, white, pure white linen garment is not going to stay clean for long? How many of you know their hands aren't going to stay? Like they didn't have hazmat suits back then, right? So they're doing this duty and this is actually a form of worship to the Lord. 
And when they came past this altar, they would step right up to this bronze basin. And it was at that bronze basin where they would have to clean their hands and their feet before entering the tent that we now call the tabernacle. Now they had to do it before they entered the tabernacle, but they also had to cleanse themselves before they made their first sacrifice. So when they came in to the, uh, the entranceway, they would go straight to this basin, wash their hands and their feet. Then they would go back to the altar, start to make sacrifices. But before they went into that tent where the bread was, the incense, the lampstand, which we're gonna get to in these upcoming three weeks, they had to wash their hands and their feet. The priests wore no sandals whatsoever. They were standing on holy ground anytime they were ministering to the Lord. The verses that describe, uh, I'm going to skip past that Psalm 24 one, but the verses that describe the actual construction of this basin in, in Exodus 30, verse 17, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with a bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. It's pretty severe. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. Now, if we piece all of that together, with one more verse in Exodus 38, 8. It says, they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So we see we're still making and covering these items in bronze. Bronze represented humanity and the judgment of God upon sin. You follow me? The bronze bases of the outer court where the curtains hung we're made of bronze. You walk in, the altar is covered in bronze. You walk closer to the tent of meeting, this basin now is covered in bronze. However, it's also inlaid with the mirrors from the women, and we'll get to the reason why. We don't know all the dimensions. We don't know a lot else about this specific item, but what we know is this. To the priests of that day, it represented self-examination, and it represented preparation to minister to the Lord and to minister to the people. For us today, it still represents our self-examination and it still represents the Lord preparing us to minister to him and to other people. You see that the priest had to wash before going into the tent and also before offering sacrifices. I think that we get this wrong sometimes. When we talk about ministry in the church, we usually think about signing up on the hub to do something for someone else to serve people. Now, is there anything wrong with serving other people? Absolutely not. Jesus says, I've come to serve, not to be served. So we know that that's biblical. But I want you to catch something. The primary role of the priest in the Old Testament, let's just pause. There's a primary role. Who are the priests in the New Testament? Me, because I have a microphone and get paid to preach? I mean, I'm one of you. Who's the priest in the new covenant? Every single person that calls himself a believer, actually every single person that follows Jesus as Lord, has become part of a royal priesthood, okay? 
So don't look at me as like, he's the pastor, he should do the holy stuff and we'll just follow him. No, you are a part of the royal priesthood. Let's go back now. The primary role of the priest in the tabernacle was ministry to the Lord. That was first and foremost. Once they understood the aspect of ministering to the Lord, out of who he is and their knowledge of him, they were able to minister to the people. What do we do in the American church? I don't think we do a bad job at this, but this is what we can get caught up in is we want all of you to sign up for as many ministries as you can and serve, serve, serve until you're tired, maybe even burned out, and then you'll just be like, you know, done serving at church. And we can get so busy doing all this stuff that we forgot, wait a minute, primarily my role is to minister before the Lord. So what would happen if we would say, hey guys, let's take a season to minister primarily to the Lord in your own time, your own private time. Get filled up with the knowledge and revelation of just who he was. Understand the communion through the showbread and the incense of prayers rising and the light of the world through that lampstand and what the Holy Spirit's doing. And then out of being overflowing with him, we serve others. This actually is how that's supposed to be. We like reverse it because we're so we're busybodies in this country. So let's pull one aspect from the ancient times and, rep, and pull it into our modern day worship. Your role, even when you come here, right? You don't come here. Your primary role is not to come here to receive a word from the Lord. Your primary role is to come to minister unto God. I don't like to sing. I don't like to worship. I don't have a good singing voice. Then figure out a different way while we're singing to worship the Lord. Draw a picture to him, write a letter to him. I don't don't know what to do. But our primary role when we come together is to worship him, minister unto him. Then out of that overflow, we minister to other people because he's spoken to us. He's filled us and he's leading us. Guys, all right? Entrance, everybody can come through the entrance. The average worshiper, the priests. The average worshiper was allowed to go to the altar of the burnt offering to bring their offering. Only the priests were able to go to the wash basin. I don't want you to disengage there because we just said we together corporally are a royal priesthood. So when you think about the priests washing their hands and their feet, picture yourself not a guy with a garb on, not somebody that's called to a high and holy calling. Think of you. You are called to a high and holy calling. So think of yourself washing this, okay? Let's just take a look here. There's significance in what's going on. God is saying, wash properly or die. Anytime the Lord is going to end someone's life for doing something wrong in the Old Testament, it would be wise of us to stop and figure out why. And then we could say, in the new covenant, I don't think he's going to end our life right away, but there has to be some type of spiritual significance. So let's look. Old Testament is old covenant. There's an outward washing of hands and feet to purify, to self-examine, and to prepare. If they do that outward thing wrong, they die outwardly. In the new covenant, We're not called just to wash our hands and feet, but children and students in the room, it's still important that you wash your hands and your feet. What happens is this, if you don't properly purify and wash your heart, 
there is a spiritual death that will occur. So no, God's not going to like drop us dead physically, but we will do it to ourselves if we don't allow the Lord to wash us and purify us daily. So how do we do that? How do we take what that bronze basin and what that water meant? Because it was filled with water and they were supposed to wash their hands and pour it over their feet. Well, in the New Testament, it talks about the water, that we're being washed with the water of his word. So how do we wash our soul and our spirit in the new covenant? It's by not just reading this for head knowledge, but allowing it to penetrate our hearts in such a way that it actually redirects our life. If we get off path or if we're on the right path, it stretches our faith beyond our comfort zone so we could fulfill the destiny that God has for us. Now, when we think about being washed with the water of his word, there's two word of gods I wanna talk about. The first word is a capital W. When you're reading in the New Testament and you see something called the word of God, or just the word, and it's a capital W, it's talking about Jesus. He is the capital W word. And then anytime you see the lowercase w word of God, it's talking about the written word of God that has revealed the nature of God, pointed us to Jesus and the covenant that we're in. Capital W, Jesus, lowercase w, the written word, which is God-breathed. This written word is still living and is still active. This, this written word, it says in scripture that it's sharper than a double-edged sword to cut us deep, to refine us. This written word, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us that we would be prepared to do all the things the Lord has called us to do in this life. And we look at this as like a three-minute daily devotion that we have to do or we'll feel guilty. Is any of you with me? Do you ever just look at that? You're, you're, oh, you are staring at me like I'm crazy today. <laughs> I've looked at the word like that before. I have my checkbox. I got to get it done. If I don't, I feel guilty. If I do, I feel okay. But I close it and I go on with my day. That's not what this is to be used for. This word is to wash our soul to continue to sanctify us. We come into Christ. We come into salvation through Christ and he cleanses us. And then we continue to be cleansed by this word through his spirit. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says this. This is talking about Jesus. Look for the capital W. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word. This is that entrance gate when we come into Christ. And now in Ephesians 5, it's talking about a written word. I want you guys to follow me. When Ephesians was written, when the New Testament was written, this book wasn't around. Do you guys understand that? It was currently being written. Then it wasn't for hundreds of years later that a bunch of godly men came together, prayed, and asked, what books do we put in this thing that we call the Holy Bible? However, when Paul was writing about Scripture and about the written word, 
we can absolutely apply it to what we have in front of us today. So in Ephesians 5, it's talking about husbands and wives and how they're supposed to interact. But Paul says, this is all a mystery. But what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. So let's see what Christ does for the church. In verse 25 of Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay? So we are to be a Christ-like example for our wives. Now let's follow out what Christ did for the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy. How did he do that? It says, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, lowercase w. So capital W is washing us with lowercase w after we come to know him as Lord and Savior. And it says it's to present her to himself. This is like amazing. He's preparing his own bride so that he can present her, who is us, the bride, how he can present her back as a radiant church. Listen, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. It says blameless and holy. This is Jesus' way to prepare us, through his word, by his spirit. So now it's like if you were getting ready for an awesome event, like a really, really special occasion, you would prepare for that, right? You probably, if you were out in the yard working or you're out in the driveway shoveling snow, you would probably cleanse your body. You would probably take a shower, put deodorant on, maybe a little bit of cologne. If it was a really special event, you would get dressed properly to present yourself to that event in an adequate manner. And yet Jesus is preparing us for the moment where we see him face to face and we have the marriage supper of the lamb. And the way he's doing it is through this word forming us and fastening in our soul. And are we spending the time in it? Are we letting it cleanse us and purify us? We're getting ready for a really special event. The marriage supper of the lamb. It's coming and he is preparing us. And he's like, it's in here. My spirit wants to show you these things. And you're like, no, daddy, I don't want to take a shower right now. I just want to go play. <laughs> Let it cleanse you. Let it purify you. Let it cut you deep. Let it do its job. Amen? If you do think about parents of like little, little, little young ones, and they're outside playing. They come in with their dirty hands. They might not know how to scrub really well all the way. So what a good father or mother would do is, you know, get out the warm soapy water and just scrub and get underneath all those fingernails. And the kids probably don't enjoy it that time, but everything's clean. So the parent has cleansed the child completely free. Now, what we would love for to happen is for the child to go from this place straight to the dinner table so you can feast together. But what might happen from time to time is a child might go and start touching their books again or start touching maybe dirty toys or put their fingers in their mouth or start picking their nose. And the parent's like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. Let's just get to the dinner table so we can eat with clean hands. This is a perfect picture of what the father does. Through Christ, he has absolutely cleansed us 
spiritually, our hands, our heart has been made pure. And yet as adult Christians, we spend time picking our nose and getting dirty once again and not allowing the Lord, yes, I just said that, and not allowing the Lord to cleanse us. He cleansed us and now we remain clean. It takes our part, right? Look at the burnt offering back in the tabernacle. The burnt offering, when the Lord, when, when the, uh, the priests were consecrated and the very first sacrifice happened, where did the fire come from? Did they, did they pull out a lighter or a match? No. Fire fell from heaven and then all the priests had to do was keep that thing burning. Let's walk a little bit forward toward the tent. Now we're at the wash basin. Do they stick their hands out and water, a waterfall comes from heaven? Absolutely not. This time, the priest must do the work of taking the water and pouring it over their hands and pouring over their feet and purifying themselves. And that's what we do in the new covenant. We purify ourselves with the water of the word. I wanna share with you several scriptures and you're just gonna watch this theme throughout scripture and then we'll get back to the basin for a few minutes. In Psalm 51, seven, it says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 10 says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Listen, this is before Jesus. This is in the Old Testament. And the psalmist already knew what was happening, not this outward washing, but an inward washing and a renewing of the spirit. Isaiah 1.16 says, wash and make yourselves clean. That doesn't mean that we earn our salvation by our own right. That means you've been cleaned, now stay clean. It says, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. And there's an intentionality here, folks, of to rid ourselves in John 15, 3, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So the capital word is speaking life, lowercase word, into their lives and they have been cleaned because of it. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I want you to picture if you came through this entrance uh, into the outer courts and you've offered your sacrifice and now you know temporarily your sins are forgiven. I want you to think about walking around those outer courts and picking up a few lies and a few areas that you've cheated and some anger and maybe an addiction or a bad habit. And now you're wearing all these things, okay? And now we're gonna walk past this wash basin and not cleanse ourselves and go right into the tent of the tabernacle. How do you think that's gonna distort our worship? Is God still there? Absolutely. Are we gonna hear him clearly? Are we gonna receive from him as he wishes? No, because if we were wearing all this junk, instead of stepping back to the basin and saying, cleanse me, Lord, I've picked up this junk along the way. I know that you've atoned for my sins. I need washed again today. I need purified. And that's where you let the word minister to you. In Hebrews 10, 22, Sharice opened up today with this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, the full assurance that faith brings. So we're not running from God. We're coming to him with faith, 
with sincerity. And it says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So that way, when we do mess up, even when we sin, we're not sitting here thinking about that and we're not doing sin management. We're going back to the wash basin. Purify me again so that my conscience will remain clean. So these mirrors that are in the basin, that was all about self-examination. Think about the priest. Every time that he looked over that basin, he was gonna see himself. And he's gonna, he's like, okay, I am man representing this community of believers. When I step into this tent and begin to minister to the Lord through these different instruments, it's me. I'm human. I need God. And every time they scooped out water, they would have that picture, that reflection of the dirt on their hands and of their feet. The New Testament version of that is this. When we look to the word and that reflects where our life is and there's self-examination, we're not supposed to close the word and then forget what it says. In James 1, it says this. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. I think about this sometimes. I want to learn something from his word every day. I want to grow in his word. But I remember, I remember thinking um, a long time ago, and I just think about it uh, every so often, of what if I would take everything I knew and just did that? What if I didn't learn anything new from the word? I just took everything else I already know and just obey 100% of that. Like how much would our life change? If every single thing he's already shown us through this word, we obeyed. So it says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. So does that happen? Do we look away and we say, wait, did I have one nose or two? Two eyes or four? No, we know what we look like. And yet they're saying, when you look at this thing, and you're like, okay, 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 that's been enough. I have to go do other things now. And you completely forget what the Lord just shown you. It's like looking away from a mirror, completely forgetting what you look like. It says in verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So there's actually an expectation that the Lord has, that as he shows you revelation in his word, that you obey it. And he's not like teaching it and throwing a book at you and saying, okay, you obey it now. He's placed his spirit in you to help you to obey this. And this isn't because he's some angry, distant king that says, you listen to me. He knows as we obey his spirit, we will walk in the purposes and plans he has for us. He knows what's best. So the Lord washes us through this water. In, in uh, Proverbs 27, 19, it says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. We need the word of God to go deeper than our head. We need it to penetrate our heart so our, ref our life will actually reflect what's in our heart. So we have the hands being washed and the feet. The hands represent ministry. The hands represent how you will be ministering to the Lord 
in how you'll minister to other people. So as this priest was washing his hands, he was preparing himself either to go back out to minister to the people through the burnt offerings, or he was was preparing to go into the tent to begin to minister directly to the Lord with no outside worshiper there. Just the priests are in that tent ministering to the Lord. So think about that for yourself. How can you do this? If you're reading through scripture, I want you to look at what Jesus did and what he said. Learn, what did he do and what did he say? And as you allow the word from God's word to penetrate your heart, what did Jesus do and what did he say? You will be washing your spiritual hands, your heart preparing to minister to him and to other people. When they washed their feet, there was a preparation for where they were about to go. Were they about to go to to work with the worshiper or were they about to go into the presence of God? So as we are spiritually washing our feet, what does that look like today? Well, Paul says in Ephesians, when he's talking about the armor of God, he says to have our feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So what we should say is, God, show me the message of the gospel of the kingdom both in the Old Testament and New. Show me what it looks like. Show me how you had men and women of God use their feet to come into the presence of God and show me how they've used their feet to go out into a dark world to minister the kingdom and to expand and advance the kingdom everywhere they go. That's the preparation when you're spiritually washing your feet. You know, my mind goes back to when the Lord said to Moses to remove your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. That's what we're preparing our hearts for, is to be in the holy presence of God with a clean heart and a pure conscience. And we also think about Jesus, right? Right before he was crucified, what did he do with the disciples? He washed their feet. It's interesting, whenever Jesus was about to kneel down uh, in front of Peter. Peter's like, hold on. You're not gonna wash my feet. And, and Jesus was like, unless I wash your feet, you're not gonna have any part of me. And he's like, okay, so wash my feet, wash my head. I'm picturing like, go ahead, just, just drench me, Lord. And Jesus says, listen, you're already clean. Your feet will be enough. Now, what do we, how do we know that they're clean? Well, Jesus says in John 15, You have been cleansed because of the word I've spoken to you. So he has prepared them up to this point, but he's washing their feet because they were about to be sent out to great persecution, but also great power, great miracles, and great preaching. And the Lord wants to continue to prepare us in that way. Adam, you can come up at this time. Though scripture does not specifically represent the basin to water baptism, it really is about self-reflection and preparation. I still get that image of coming through the gate of the, of the tent, or not of the tent, I'm sorry, of the outer courts. You come through the gate to Jesus. You encounter the burnt offering where there is atonement for your sins. So what happens after, the, after you realize you've been, all of your sins have been atoned for? You get washed with water. It's the same picture here. You come through Jesus and realize my sins have been forgiven. Now, what's the next step? Your outward body gets fully submersed in the waters of baptism as a bold declaration to what has happened on the inside of you. I'm telling you, scripture is full of this stuff. 
full of imagery and prophetic declarations and looking forward all to the person of Jesus. Now I'm gonna show you just in these last few minutes how you could actually work this out in your own practical life. So I try to be in the word every day. I miss some at times. I'm, I'm here to confess my sins. Actually, there's a scripture there. Confess your sins to one another and you'll be forgiven. Now, I try to be in the word every day. I try to learn from it. I try to be formed and fashioned by his word. But there are days that I miss. But when, what I'm reading right now, um, I'm reading through a reading plan that takes you through chronologically of when the actual books of the Bible were written. So if you look like Genesis wasn't written first, it's a retelling of what happened at the beginning of time, if that makes sense. So I'm reading things as they actually occurred in scripture. So I just happened to be in 1 Samuel. And that day, it was, I think it was like Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, I was reading through 1 Samuel chapter five, which is really cool because it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't in the tabernacle anymore. They had already moved into the promised land. We're talking about now where there was a more permanent tabernacle and then a temple, okay? So this was, it was before the temple was built, but there was gonna be a, an actual tabernacle that, that David would eventually set up. So anyway, what happens is this. I'm reading in scripture. The Israelites rebelled and they turned away from God once again. The Philistines come in and crush them. And they actually steal the Ark of the Covenant. Like they steal it from the Israelites and they take it back to their own hometown. I'm thinking to myself, like, how do you steal God? Like they stole God. Like that's where he dwelt was right above the mercy seat that, that sat on the Ark of the Covenant. Like they stole, they stole the Israelites' God. So I'm reading just through my devotions, not preparing for a sermon. I'm not Pastor Kurt at that time. I'm just Kurt reading the Bible, asking it to penetrate my heart. So it says, after the Philistines have captured the Ark of God, in fact, if you have your Bible, even if you're sitting at home, this is 1 Samuel. Maybe you want to flip to it. I'm reading out of the NIV. I know the Bibles in your pews are New Living Translation, but whether it's here, on an app, at home, uh, on your couch, whatever, you, you could look at these words with me. So after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So it was one city to the next. Then they carried the ark. This is the ark of the covenant, like this thing that was built back where we're talking about. So they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, Dagon was a false god. It was a statue that they built a temple for. And that god was a crop fertility god. So they believed in this, that this god would bring them good, good crops. So I'm just like, I mean, I've read this several times before. I just like slowed down enough. I'm like, I don't know if I remember that. They actually brought the presence of God into the presence of a false God. So it says in verse three, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I just stopped a few days ago. I'm like, this is crazy. Like God wasn't trying to put on a show in front of everybody. He didn't gather everybody. In a, in a dark, quiet part of the night, God's presence is there. And he's saying, there is no false God, no demon or no devil that will stand in my presence. And out of nowhere, this statue just falls 
on its face. I just started thinking and like just telling the God, just telling God, like, I know how powerful you are, but something in this scripture makes me realize just how powerful you are. Like you're not messing around. You will not even let a statue remain in place in your presence. So then I moved on. I said they took that Dagon and put him back in his place, right? Why not just pull that statue right back up? Learn, people, learn. Verse 4, it says, But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands, his head and his hands had broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. In verse 5, it goes on to continue to talk about to this day the priests or anybody who enters that temple will not step on that threshold because that is the place where the head and the hands of their false god was crumbled and demolished. And I keep reading this, and now it says that the Lord brought devastation upon the people, afflicted them with tumors until they said, give it back. Like, give the Israelites their God back. We don't want it. And then it goes through this process where eventually David's dancing before the Lord as they bring it back into Jerusalem. But I just stopped. It was maybe just for a few minutes thinking about this scripture and the awe that it put in front of me. Like, our God is Jehovah. He's the one that reigns. He's the all-powerful. There's not one demon that can stand in his place. And if he can't stand in the presence of God, then his plans can't stand. So yes, we face junk and we face difficulty, but in the end, nothing will be standing but our God. And then a couple of days later, I'm thinking about this. There's a, there's a lot of imagery here to this statue falling. And I think in the scripture, one day, one day, every knee is going to bow before Jesus. Every tongue is going to confess that, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. So now there's this Old Testament, before Jesus came, there's this Old Testament imagery that I've pulled into my modern day worship that one day, every person who's rebelled against the Lord and who's fallen Lord will fall face forward before the Lord onto their knee and declare he is Lord. So I'm thinking about these verses this week. I didn't write it as a part of my message. But I'm like, this is a very practical way that you can take what you're reading in the Bible on a daily basis and just let something speak to you and let it remind you throughout the week and it's forming and fashioning you. So the next time a big challenge comes into my life, hopefully I will remember that statue of that false demonic God falling in the presence of God. So we come here to church. I looked at the list of the songs. I wasn't really thinking about them. And we start singing a song called Beautiful Name Today. And that bridge comes up. You have no rival. You have no equal. Forever, forever and ever, God, you will reign. What's my mind come back to? That statue of Dagon just falling. There's nothing that's ever going to be equal to the God that we serve. So now I'm connecting Wednesday's devotional time that have nothing to do with me standing up here to a song that we hear. So now what? If this happens to you, you go home, you remember the name of the song, you put it on YouTube, put it on a playlist, and that whole week just jam to that song. You have no rival. 
You have no equal. Every time that bridge comes up, picture that, 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 that demonic statue falling and the head popping off and you let that thing penetrate your heart. That is how you let the word of God purify you and cleanse you and prepare you to minister to him and to minister to other people. I wanna stand. You can join me in my time of worship because I wanna sing this bridge one more time because it's connected to what the Lord's doing in my life. So why don't we stand and we'll close just by singing this. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.